Indeed, O oh God, we are a people who long to have glory begotten by you as a result of how you watch us and how we live before you. We understand our lives are played out as a, as a temporal drama before a heavenly audience. And we ask that you might find and take great pleasure in watching a people who believe in that which is unseen. We believe in a kingdom that is not of this world. We believe in a king whose greatest accomplishment was his death. That went on to become a resurrection and an ascension and a session at the right hand of God the Father even now. That is to whom we belong. And so as people whose highest loyalty and allegiances in life are to the King of Kings, the one that, that the non-Christian world does not yet see, we pray, O oh God, that you will get glory from our lives. Father, prepare us to meet you at this table, and we ask that you will accept these offerings of ours as a token of our great commitment to the expansion of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You know, I've never, um, I've never checked the Guinness Book of World Records, but I don't think that there is a category, a list in there. I'm not sure, but I don't think there is a, a, a category for the world's worst families. Now, um, if, if there were such a list, uh, I, I think I, I know someone who would, who would be at the top of that list. I mean, if, if not in the top three, almost maybe perhaps the, the top in that category. Uh, I want to I tell you a, a bit of their story. Um, I, I guess the worst part of the story begins when um, one of the sons, and there were several, there were several sons and a couple of daughters in this family, but um, one of the sons rapes his half-sister. Now, that's not to, to suggest to you that, uh, that he was a bad seed, just a bad apple and a, and a bunch of good apples. No, just about every kid in the family turned out bad. But one of the sons, on occasion, rapes his half-sister, and um, when the father heard about what had happened, uh, he got angry, but um, he really didn't do much anything else about it. He just got real mad. So another one of the sons in that family, uh, after waiting around to see what his dad was going to do, decides that his dad's not going to do anything, and so he takes matters into his own hands and murders his brother who had raped his sister. Um, that boy uh, then runs away from home and moves to another country so that he cannot be prosecuted. Uh, and uh, what we're told is, what I, what I was told is that the, uh, the dad, um, again, was really upset about that event, but he really, um, he really missed his son. And, uh, and for a second time, didn't do much else about it, but um, everybody really knew that this boy, the one that had murdered his brother, was his favorite anyway. But about three years later, the dad missed that boy, who was now in another country, living in another country. He missed him so much, who, by the way, but this boy living in the other country, he was um, the best-looking kid of the bunch, of the litter. I mean, in fact, many people would have said that he was one of the, be- the most handsome men they've ever seen. Um, on the outside, I mean, he was the whole package. He had it all, folks. 
Um, and his dad missed him so much that he got a message to him that he needed to move back home. But if he did move back home, he needed to know that he was not going to be allowed to move into the house. So the boy did move back to his hometown, and uh, but um, daddy wouldn't let him in the house, and so he rented him an apartment down the street, and that's where he lived. So for two years, that boy um, lived... Down the street, and, and they really kind of lived in a fairly small town, and it was kind of hard for them to avoid each other, but successfully they did for a couple of years. Um, but the dad, for the next two years, never saw his son, who was living in an apartment around the, the, the street. The boy was um, home, but he wasn't home, if, if you know what I mean. The, uh, the dad was angry at the boy, and yet missing him all at the same time. Um, the dad was confused. And the boy was getting angrier by the moment. Sensed or felt rejected and shunned and, and distanced from his dad. Another two years went by and um, th- that boy had had enough. So uh, he uh, wanted to see his dad, but he uh, his dad wouldn't see him. And so he... Um, um, he kept trying to get an appointment with his dad and the, the dad, who, by the way, was a very wealthy businessman and very busy in his, in his business. And, uh, his dad had a personal assistant that kept, uh, blocking all his phone calls and wouldn't, wouldn't let the boy see his dad. And so, um, the, the boy had, uh, had enough of all that. And so he decided that, uh, he had a strategy. And so what he did is he got some of his friends to burn down the house of the, uh, personal assistant. So now he's added uh, arson to murder, but his plan does produce results because the, the, the personal assistant comes to find out what's happening. And uh, the boy says, well, I've been trying to see my dad. And, and uh, he said, well, all right. And so he finally, uh, the boy is finally reunited with his father, or at least sort of. But by this time, this boy had... Um, had given up any hope of having any intimacy with his dad. And he spent the next four years plotting how he could steal the family business. How he could throw his dad out on his ear and, and, um, and take over the family business himself. And so, uh, through some schemings, he does succeed in uh, getting his daddy removed. And, and if that weren't enough, he... Um, <laughs> He takes his dad's wife and sleeps with her in public. Now that, that all is the, 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 uh, the, the, the events in the life of, of a son who, who felt that he didn't have his daddy's approval. You know, we're not talking about a boy who got caught, and caught smoking behind the tool shed. I mean, you're not talking about a boy who uh, missed his curfew or, you know, the principal called, uh, you know, and told him he was in trouble. Uh, we're talking about a family that was in abject disarray. If, if you wanted a poster child for a dysfunctional family, that would be it. This is, this is familial breakdown. But on the outside, that um, was a fine-looking family. They were wealthy, lived in a nice house in a very affluent section of town, uh, quite influential family in their community. You know whose story that is? 
David's. King David. You know, the, uh, the giant killing, poem writing, nation leading. David. Who at home was a flop. The boy's name is Absalom, and the story that I just told you, uh, in, in the interest of time, is a, t- is a story that unfolds over six chapters of Scripture. And you might want to turn there. I'm going to allude to it just briefly, but it, it really starts in, in 2 Samuel 13, and it goes for six chapters. That story that I just told you about a family is a, is a, is a distillate, it's a summary of David's family. In, in modern terminology, David was a success at the office, but a failure at home. Down deep, guys, I, I think all of us dread that that would ever be said about us. That is, that we were, uh, you know, we were successful down at the, down at the, down at the company, but, uh, you know, at home, we were miserable failures. We, we, we would dread that. That being ever said of us, we, we want to be the best dads and the best moms that we can possibly be. I, and, and I'm convinced that we want that more than we want corporate success. I mean, if, if you got to if you're going to have to judge success, we know that it's not going to be judged based on the parking space that has our name on it or the whether or not we have a corner office. Um, we, we, um, we would trade all of that business for a peaceful home, wouldn't we? So what I want to do is quickly, uh, as we prepare for the Lord's Supper, I, I'd like to draw some lessons out of this story from the family of the second king of Israel, David. I have four lessons for you guys from this this story, we won't be able to read it all. I'll show you a couple of points in it, but um, just four lessons from, a, from an award-winning family. Here's lesson number one. Distance is deadly. You know, folks, uh, every family needs a dad who's not simply on hand, but on board. Not just physically present, but emotionally engaged. There's a, there's a level of involvement that is, that is demanded, uh, on the part of dads in, in terms of his family. You know, um, and, and one skill that is awfully useful here is a skill known as listening. You know, the, with both ears. When I, when I wanted my kids to really listen to me, I'd say, now I want you to listen to me with both ears. And, and you know, we all are guilty of listening with just one ear. We got one ear cut on ESPN, and we've got another ear cut on, oh, yeah, oh, no kidding, really, that's really, it's really interesting. Well, gang, um, what, what families demand is that eyeball-to-eyeball stuff, where if you're going to listen, one of the best ways to do it is simply concentrate on the eyes. Gang, the most important thing that you might ever do is not close the big deal. The most important thing that you might ever do is coach your daughter's soccer team. But we parents have got to work 
at keeping distance to a minimum. Folks, because distance between the parents and kids is deadly. Um, I'm not talking about being their best friends. Uh, they, don't, they got other friends in their lives that, that uh, are, understand them a whole lot better than we do. But what you see in the family of David is a distance imposed by a dad that produces incredibly ugly results. Distance, gang, is deadly in a family. That is, between parents and and kids. Here's the second lesson. Though it's very complex, though it's very difficult, though it's very costly... Godly, righteous, biblical leadership is required. It is a must, folks. Now, I, I, I'm going to take you on a, on a, just a bit of conjecture, but it's not a, it's not a huge piece of conjecture. So stay with me. After Amnon rapes Tamar, that's found for you, uh, that's recorded for you in 2 Samuel 13. Uh, Amnon, uh, one of the brothers, one of the sons of David, has got eyes for one of his half-sisters. He, he has the same father, not the same mother. Um, but he, he cooks up this scheme and rapes his sister, his half-sister. After that happens, we're told, if you'll look with me, at verse 21, 1321, we're told uh, what David does. David is told about this event, and verse 21 tells us what David did. But when King David heard all of all these things, he was angry. Do you know what David did in response to this event? Nothing. Nothing. Oh, he got angry, he, you know, he, uh, he threw a few things and, and he yelled and he called Absalom a bad name and, uh, or Ammon a bad name. But he did nothing. And that, my friends, was a very costly failure to lead. You know, I, I'm convinced, and here's my conjecture, and you can um, sort it out yourself, but I'm convinced that Absalom would have been a different boy had his dad done what this situation demanded? What was that? What did this situation demand? I don't know. That's why they say leadership is complex and difficult. But I can tell you this much. Doing nothing was not the right choice. This is a failure to lead. And lead we must. Brothers, um... Taking the heat is no fun. Believe me. Um, Anybody in any leadership position will tell you the same. Who wants to take the heat? And yet that's what our, our kids and our wife are longing for. And that's when our kids and our wives are going to find out what kind of stuff we're made of. In the midst of situations that demand our leadership, the tone of the whole family is set and heard in the heat. You know, Absalom watched his dad do absolutely nothing. Which, by the way, is leadership. It's the wrong leadership, but, I mean, doing nothing is leadership too. Just bad leadership. But Absalom watched his dad do absolutely nothing about a huge family problem. 
Guys, there are family issues that have to be faced by us. They have to be corrected by us. Maybe there are issues with the kids. Maybe there are issues with the in-laws. You know, I I can't tell you how many times over 30 years of ministry I've heard wives tell me that their husbands do nothing when his parents attack her. Brothers... Get that stopped. And it's going to be ugly and people's feelings are going to be hurt. And there's going to be, a, you know, rah, rah, rah. but issues have got to be faced. We got we have got to stand up and take the heat of leadership. Because our families are begging us to lead. I want to read you something, and I, it's kind of risky to read this because you're going to draw a whole lot of uh, conclusions that I don't have. I'm just trying to illustrate a vacuum of leadership. That's all I'm trying to do. I'm not trying to follow. I'm not saying follow this. I'm just saying this is an illustration. This is an email I got a couple of three years ago, three years ago, and um, it had to do, it, it, was, it, it was an article that appeared in the Boston Globe, and it was written by a guy by the name of Jeff Jacoby, and he was describing this fellow by the name of John Walker. You remember him? Actually, how about this? How about John Walker Lind? Maybe that he was the American kid that turned Taliban. Remember that? This is an article about his family. It isn't the case that the parents of John Walker, the Marion, the Marin County child of privilege turned Taliban terrorist, never drew the line with their son. No, no. True, they didn't do so when he was 14, and his consuming passion was collecting hip-hop CDs with especially nasty lyrics. And true, they didn't put their foot down when he announced at 16 that he was going to drop out of Tamaskal High School, the elite alternative school where students determined their own course of study and only saw a teacher once a week. And granted, they didn't interfere when he abruptly decided to become a Muslim after reading the autobiography of Malcolm X, grew a beard, and took to wearing long white robes and an oversized skullcap. On the contrary, his father was proud of John for pursuing an alternative course, and his mother told friends that it was good for a child to find a passion. Nor did they object when he began spending more and more time at a local mosque and set about trying to memorize the Koran. Nor when he asked his parents to pay his way to Yemen so he could learn to speak pure Arabic. Nor when they learned that his new circle of friends included gunmen who had been to Chechnya to fight the Russians. Nor when he headed to Pakistan to join a madrashah in a region known to be a stronghold of Islamist extremists. His parents also didn't balk when he went to fight in Afghanistan, but that at least they didn't know about. Walker hadn't told them. Perhaps by that point, he had learned to take their consent for granted. Only once, it seems, did Frank Lynn and Marilyn Walker actually deny their son something he wanted. When he first adopted Islam and took the name Suleiman, they refused to use it and insisted on calling him John. After all, he had been named for one of the giants of our time, John Lennon. Their refusal must have amazed him. For as long as he could remember, his oh-so-progressive parents had answered yes to his every whim, indulged his every fancy, permitted, even praised his every passion. The only thing they insisted on was that nothing be insisted on. Nothing. Nothing in his life was important enough for them to make an issue of. Not his schooling, not his religion, not his appearance, not even whether he stayed in America or moved, while still a minor, to a benighted third-world oligarchy halfway around the world. Nothing, except, of course, their right to call him by the name of their favorite beetle. 
Devout practitioners of the self-obsessed non-judgmentalism for which the Bay Area is renowned, Lind and Walker appear never to rebuke their son or criticize his choices. In their world, there were no absolutes, no fixed truths, no mandatory behavior, no thou shalt nots. If they had one conviction, it was that all convictions are worthy, that nothing is intolerable except intolerance. But even in Marin County, there are times when children need to hear no and don't. They need to know that there are limits they must respect and expectations they must live up to. If they cannot find those limits and expectations at home, they are apt to look for them elsewhere. Newsweek calls it truly perplexing that Walker, who grew up in possibly the most liberal, tolerant place in America, was drawn to the most illiberal, intolerant sect in Islam. There is nothing perplexing about it. He craved standards and discipline. Mom and dad didn't offer any. The Taliban did. Even when it was clear that their son was sinking into Islamist fanaticism, they wouldn't pull back on the reins. When Osama bin Laden's terrorists bombed the USS Cole and killed 17 American servicemen, Walker emailed his father that the attack had been justified since by docking the ship in Yemen, the United States had committed an act of war. Lynn now says that that message raised my concerns, but that didn't stop him from writing up Walker another $1,200 check. After all, says Dad, my days of molding him were over. It isn't clear that they ever began. It undoubtedly came as a jolt as his parents... To his parents, when Walker turned up at the fortress near Mazar-e-Sharif, sporting an AK-47 and calling himself Abdul Hamid. But the revelation that their son had enlisted in Al-Qaeda and supported the September 11th attacks brought no words of reproach or self-reproach to their lips. Walker deserved a little kick in the rear for keeping them in the dark about his plans, his father said. But otherwise, they just wanted to give him a big hug. His mother, meanwhile, was quite sure that if he got involved with the Taliban, it must have been, he must have been brainwashed. When you're young and impressionable, it's easy to be led by charismatic people. Yes, it is. And it's a pity that they didn't, that didn't occur to her sooner. If she and Lynn had been less concerned with flaunting their open-mindedness and more concerned with developing their son's moral judgment, he wouldn't be where he is today. Walker is responsible for his own behavior, and he will pay the price the law requires. But his road to treason and jihad didn't begin in Afghanistan. It began in Marin County with parents who never said no. You know, guys, it is difficult to lead, isn't it? We all know that. But lead we must. And when there's a vacuum of leadership in the home, you produce Absaloms and... John Walker Lins. Here's the third lesson. You know, I, I'm convinced that one of the reasons that David didn't do anything. David, you know who David is? I'm convinced that one of the reasons he didn't do anything was because David had lost his moral, his moral leverage with the Bathsheba incident. By the way, that's recorded for you in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. You know the Bathsheba incident? He spies this woman. He, um, he impregnates her, has her husband killed, and... Um, I'm convinced that one of the reasons that David didn't say much to his boy is because he couldn't. He knew that if he went to his son and he said, son, you need to stop all that messing around, he'd say, ha, 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 you're a good one to be talking, buddy. David knew that all that stuff would be thrown back up into his face. Gang, do you see the lesson? The lesson is that moral influence demands moral integrity. Not moral perfection but a commitment to moral integrity. When you give up the, the high moral ground, we've, we, we're sunk when it comes to uh, directing our children. Here's the fourth lesson. 
Did, um, did David love Absalom? You know, I think he did. Um, you would think after all Absalom had done to him, he, uh, he'd be glad to see him dead. But I want you to listen to some of the saddest, most heart-rending words ever spoken. They're words that are wrenched out of David's gut when he got the report that his son was dead. Here's what his father says. This is 1833. Then the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said thus, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom. If only I had died in your place. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. I think that's a dad who loved his son. And yet, had a very perverted way of demonstrating that. Gang, I want to suggest to you that perhaps the most inexcusable sin of David's life was the steady, determined refusal to give to his son what God had so abundantly given to him. Forgiveness and grace. In in a series of hard-hearted choices, David communicated something that perhaps he never intended to communicate. But what he communicated to his son was, you're bad, you've disappointed me, You'll never have, you'll never amount to anything and I'm finished with you. And, um, that communicated something, all right. But it wasn't love. My brother and sister in Christ, aren't you glad? That God didn't do that to his sons. The scriptures say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. We are about to celebrate the grandest display of love ever witnessed by mankind. You are going to hold in your hands... Symbols. Symbols of an event. An event which screams from a father to wayward sons. You're forgiven. You're restored. You're immensely valuable. Now come home. Let me pray. Our Father, indeed, I pray that you will meet us at this table and that you will remind us of the great work of Jesus Christ for wayward sons like me and the rest of us in this room. Oh God, give us a sense, a a special sense that there is love, acceptance, and forgiveness that awaits all those who place their whole hope of redemption in the finished work of Jesus Christ.
communicate that to us through these symbols as we join to them our faith in Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.